survivor, go-giver, activist. You are listening to The Brave Files, real stories from people living courageously. You can listen to the show anywhere you enjoy podcasts, and we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference, and we appreciate it. Now here's your host, Heather Vickery. Hey everybody, it's Heather Vickery. Welcome to The Brave Files. Today, I have the joy of welcoming one of my dear friends, one of my favorite people, Nicole Zenner, to the show. I don't get to do this very often, and I really feel honored that Nicole has agreed to sit down and talk with us. She's a special person. She takes compassion to a whole new level and has dedicated her life to all things that make the world brighter and better. Nicole's also a survivor of gun violence, and when I say survivor, I mean, she's lucky to be alive, and she takes that very seriously in both her personal and professional life. Nicole, thank you so much for being here today. Heather, that was an amazing intro. I'm blushing and crying. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. I am so honored to be here with you today because I have been listening to your podcast, and you have been interviewing some remarkable human beings. Every story has been so inspirational. So thank you for bringing their stories to life and to light. Oh, you're welcome. And I meant every word. And I know that everyone who listens to this, who knows you is going to go, yep, that's Nikki. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a short list of people that get to call her Nikki. And I, I felt really special when the privilege was extended to me. <laughs> so true. So let's Let's go ahead and talk about, I do want to talk about all of the amazing things that you are doing and that you have done personally and professionally, but let's talk about the big elephant in the room. Let's talk yeah. about what happened, the incident. Yeah. So I grew up in Minnesota, very small town in central Minnesota, had that quote unquote normal uh, childhood in rural America in the 1980s and 90s. Um, I went to college and then I moved to the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, for those that are not aware, with some college roommates. And so I had only been living in the Twin Cities for a year and I was working and I came home from work on the evening of May 31st, 2000. And I was like, hey, I need to get some stuff at Target. I'm just going to go run to Target tonight and get home and relax. So on my way to Target, I was driving down the street that I always drive down to Target. And all of a sudden, I see this younger man child running down the middle of the street. And this is a road that has two lanes of traffic in each way in the city, right? So there's no median in it. It's very rare that you would have someone running down the middle of the street. What time of day is this? This is close to 6 p.m. Okay, so, so not, just, not late. Not late at all, okay. no. So he looked like he was in distress. My window was down. It was a beautiful, you know, end of spring, early summer night. And my window was down, getting some fresh air as I'm driving. And I hear him yell, stop, stop, I've been shot. Well, it's something that you don't hear every day, especially something that I didn't hear every day. And so he got my attention and I was approaching an intersection that had a stop light. And so I actually put on my brake when he said that. And by now he had kind of run past my car. We were going in opposite directions. 
And I hit my brake and I turned around because, again, you don't hear someone that's been shot and you don't know the scenario. And it played on my wanting to help someone. Of course, yeah. And uh, he saw that he caught my attention and he started walking over to me. While he was walking over to me, he lifted up his shirt and I could tell that he had been shot in the stomach. And before I knew it, he had pulled a nine millimeter out of his waistband and was pointing at me at my head, telling me to get out of my car. And so this child, would you say this was a child? So he was a younger looking man. I found out his age was 20. He was only three years younger than I was at the time. So he had been shot. He had been shot. Okay. All right. Yeah. At that moment, I really think instincts just came into play. And I don't know if this situation would ever happen again, that this would be how I would react. But I said, no. Oh, my God. I had had a few self-defense courses by then. And I just knew that the more that you could say, no, I don't want to be in this situation and get out of the situation, the more chance you have of survival and not getting hurt. And so I had actually leaned into my car thinking that with my window down, I wouldn't, I didn't know if he would try to like grab my shoulder and try to force me out of my car because I was still in control of trying to get out of the situation. Right. Mm. So again, this happens in milliseconds. I said, no, I leaned in, I hit the accelerator to get out of the situation and he fired a shot. Oh my God. And I grew up in a hunting family. I've been around rifles and the sound of rifles my entire life. I have not been around the sound of handguns my life. And I was surprised and shocked by the pop sound of it. And because he had shot so close to my ear and to me, like the shock of it kind of made me a little unconscious for, again, like a millisecond. (laughs) I came to, he was not by my door anymore. He had taken off. I could already hear sirens. And I was just really momentarily shocked. And then I looked up and I saw an older gentleman on his cell phone running down the sidewalk. So in all of these moments, I am also kind of trying to assess what just happened. My ear was hurting really bad. And I put my hand up to my ear and there was blood. So up until this point, you thought you had just heard the gunshot. You didn't realize that he'd actually shot you? I didn't realize that that was actually the sound of being shot, being shot at. And the reason why my, my ear was bleeding is because of the sound being so close. It perforated my eardrum. And I've talked to friends and family that have been in the military and they've had this happen to them too. If they're too close to rounds going off, your ears can perforate. And that's why it was bleeding. Like I, by the grace of God and my guardian angel, which I completely believe in, I was not physically hurt. I had powder burns on my face and on my forearms where my hands were on the steering wheel. And the bullet actually lodged into my passenger side door. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> so in the, in the minutes that this is happening, you know, I, 
it's six o'clock, so there is kind of some rush hour people around. There are witnesses that saw what happened. Like I said, I heard the sirens before I knew it. The sirens were around us because they were in pursuit of this, this man. And I followed them. They ended up capturing him about two blocks from where he shot at me. I come to find out that the older gentleman that was running down the street on his phone was the owner of the jewelry store that this young man had tried to rob. And that is where he had been shot by one of the jewelry store clerks. So they, okay. Wow. So they were in pursuit of him for that. And then in the meantime, then this happened as well. Yeah. Okay. So what, what happens after, I mean, that's so, first of all, unbelievably, like you said, by the grace of God or whatever it is that you believe in, um, what do you do? Yeah. What do you, what happens after that? Yeah. So in my shock, like I said, I, I followed the sirens to where they were stopping and this was actually EMT responders. It wasn't actually even the police right away. And so they took a look at me and they're like, oh yeah, she's definitely in shock. And, you know, let's get you to a hospital and just check you out. Make sure that with the shock, you actually weren't physically hit because I was wearing a black t-shirt, you know, and sometimes you're just not even aware if you would have been hit. They, of course, impounded my car for evidence, took the ambulance ride to the hospital that I had been going to, they let me, when I got to a hospital, they let me call my roommates that I was living with. And that was a very awkward phone call to make. I'll bet. One of them immediately rushed out to find me somehow in the shock and our wires got crossed and they were at the clinic when I was at the hospital or vice versa. Mm -hmm. So we were not in the same place after they took a look at me at the hospital and kind of talked with me took photos, checked out my ear, and there's nothing that you can really do with a perforated eardrum. It just has to heal on its own. And then the cops came to ask if I was ready to make a statement. And so then rode in the cop car to downtown to make a statement. And in the meantime, I was able to relay to them, could you please try to get a hold of my roommates? They've been trying to get to me. And as soon as I did my testimony to the, to the cops, my roommates were outside the door and that's when I really lost it. Yeah. I lost it. And then I had to make the toughest call in my life was to call my parents. Yeah. Okay. Take a moment. And of course they were absolutely upset and wanted to come down to pick me up because I was living in the Twin Cities, but they lived in my hometown, which is about two hours away. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, you guys just heard this news. My roommates have already decided like they will bring me up home, stay a few days, figure this out. And so they did that. My roommates, like, I think we left the Twin Cities at like 10, got up to my hometown at midnight and then they turned around and went back. So I had to work the next Mm -hmm. day. I was like, you're amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Good friends. But from there, then it was working through the whole system since he, you know, in a way I was lucky again because he was arrested. Yeah. Many people don't have that kind of closure or that moment. And so we went, we were in the trial by that September, which again was a very difficult moment of this journey as well to face him in court when I 
had not been able to identify him via a photo lineup, which was really difficult. And I can get into that later, but it really opened up my eyes on how mm. it's just so difficult to be a quote unquote good witness when things happen so quickly. Right. And memory also is exactly not reliable. <laughs> Did exactly. he address you ever? No. Thankfully, by name, he did not. I would say in the sentencing part, so I'm not sure if everyone's aware, but you have a trial and then whether it's by the judge or the jury that he, he or she is convicted of something, then you have a sentencing hearing at another time. And so the sentencing was actually in November. And it's pretty quick, really, from It May. actually was. Yeah. I thought so too when I had heard kind of the stereotypes that it takes forever for things to move through the system. But I thought, you know, for this happening May 31st, by September, we were in the trial. And then by November, he was sentenced. In the sentencing, he made a statement to the court, but it wasn't necessarily addressed to me or the other victims. So he was in a very tough spot because he was actually tried for three counts of second degree assault, two at the jewelry store and one against me, and then three counts of first degree attempted aggravated robbery, again, two at the jewelry store and one against one me. Against you. Yeah. And then the prosecution had tried to put in attempted second degree murder for me, just based on... He tried to shoot you in the head? Yeah. The jury did not find him guilty of that, but they found him guilty on the other six counts. Because it, that, that's interesting, because it wasn't premeditated, right? So attempted second degree murder is not premeditated. Oh, okay. What I come, came to find out from, so what was also interesting, I don't know if every state does this, does this, but in Minnesota, I was given kind of like a victim's liaison to ask questions to on things regarding the trial and then sentencing and then also his incarceration to kind of help me through the process. And they did mention and that many juries will not convict on attempted murder unless the person has actually suffered a wound, mm. has been shot at multiple okay. times or something like that for this to be like a one, just a one shot. Right. Um, yeah. Do you remember what he said at the sentencing? He did say that he was sorry. Um, I was not in a place to hear that at that time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Um, do you believe him? Even now, I don't know, Heather. If I do, I. I know he's sorry he got caught. I'm sure. Yeah. But I don't know. In the trial, we found out that he was a gang member in L.A. and his grandmother lived in Minneapolis, and that's why he was in Minneapolis was to start over in a new life. He was 20. It came out in the trial that he was well-versed in many types of guns and talking to my friends that were kind of in the judicial system in Minnesota and knowing how often he moved around within the different prisons. I just don't know because he went in when he was 20 is he, he was, still in prison? No. He was sentenced to 12 years, which was a lot. The judge felt that 
what he did to me was particularly cruel and um, upped his years because of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he appealed and basically reversed that judge's decision on that. His sentence was down to nine years and he ended up serving six. And so you were consistently informed about the appeal process and about his getting parole? Yes. So as a victim, at least in the state of Minnesota at this time, or that time, you were able to say, yes, I want to know what's happening, or no, I do not want to know what's happening. I chose to know what was happening. I don't know why. I did. Um, So yes, I was sent a letter when he went through his appeal process, and when it was granted, I was sent a letter when he was moved to one prison or another. And they don't say it, but the reason they do that is to keep people from forming the gangs in the prison. And then I was notified when he was released. What was that experience like? Tell me about that day. That was difficult. I I don't really reflect on it too much because I want to believe that he was sorry and maybe he found some help and maybe found a different path, but I don't know. I don't know. It was, it was, it was hard. I never, um, what was interesting through this process is I never was afraid Afraid so of I what? I, I wasn't afraid. afraid of I wasn't afraid of him coming back to me. I wasn't afraid of him getting another gang member to come after me. I wasn't afraid of him. I hated him. That's what was scary. As I found so much hatred that came to the surface that I know when people meet me now today, they're like, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> And that's what was scary is because I knew that I was not not a hateful person. person. That's not, that's not you. Yeah. I, I was so angry that he felt that he could do this to me, a complete stranger. Not that it's any better when it's someone, you know, but of course not, you know, a complete stranger that you had the audacity that you thought that you could do this. You know, I just was so filled with hate. And so that's why I wasn't af- like afraid that he would try to find me after he got out. I was like, I, good luck, buddy. Cause in my mind, and again, this is so hard to say because I am not this person, but I was like, if I saw him on the street, I would probably want to hurt him really bad. Do you still hate him? It's not as strong. <laughs> sure. It's not as strong, but it's definitely been still a struggle 18 years later, because to me to still hold on to some of that to me also means that I haven't quite forgiven what's happened. And I know that that in the end hurts me too, but I've almost process. Yeah, it is. And I've almost kind of put it into a different compartment, so to speak, because there's some moments where I get and I'm like, hey, you know, if I wouldn't have had this experience, I don't know if I would, you know, 18 years later, everything that's happened, be the person I am today, and also cherish so many different things, if this wouldn't have happened. And so in a way, I think that is some sort of an act of forgiveness or acceptance. But yeah, it's it's still a struggle. I think it's interesting, Nikki, because you and and I want to talk about all of the really wonderful things that that you do particularly from a volunteer standpoint but you're involved 
in an organization called iGrow Chicago, and we had Rob and Carol on the show not that long ago. And Mm -hmm. as I'm listening to you, you know, what Robin has done and is doing is providing a new start to people. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things she specifically mentioned in our interview was she, you know, she was gardening next to people who had been in her words, cold-blooded killers. Mm -hmm. And this idea that they can create change that people can reform. And, and I'm wondering what it's like for you. We saw you at the Peace Fest um, Mm -hmm. in a very dangerous neighborhood of Chicago to go into a space willingly and knowingly and be surrounded by people who may have had life experiences like this man who Mm -hmm. shot at you. What is that like? That's my healing process. Honestly, it's my healing process from going from, you know, when I go back to my three words that I mentioned to me, those three words that kind of represent my past, present and future. And to me, I think for me to become a better activist, I need to go back to that moment and understand how he became the way that he became made those choices. And yeah, maybe he will never change. But there are others that do. And I think that that's, what I, I have come to love, I grow Chicago too, and that I, they're going to probably be some community members that don't take up the charge with I grow, but there are those that do. And I want to be there to support them and understand them. And maybe their victims can't forgive them, but maybe I can forgive them. How does fear sit with you? in this space. Are you frightened when you go into no, that space? I'm not. I'm not frightened at all. I and I think part of it is because it's happened once. I mean, really if it happens again, <laughs> not sure. that I want to like right. you, know, t- you know, test my chances on that, but I've I I've made it through it. I could do it again. And honestly, it's a community where so many people turn away from. And this is a community in my, my city of Chicago now. And to me, it's also as a human, how can you just turn your back to them? I can't. Right. How has this experience shaped your life? Yeah. um, (laughs) Quite honestly, it shaped me a lot. It really has. I think we're all a little naive in our, 20s and stuff too. And, and I I think that that took away from me. It's, it's been a long journey for me to be able to sit in a car at a stoplight and not worry about a homeless person or someone coming up asking for money to my window, which would be terrifying. Right. It it absolutely is. And um, still today it can be, it can be because it brings you back into that moment of I'm locked in my car. How can I get out without hurting anyone else and just get out? Yeah. It, it still does make me very uncomfortable when that happens. And same thing with even just someone coming up to you on the street. It's the same thing that you just don't know in today's world what kind of weapon they might have with them if they do. And in know? Chicago, especially the homeless community, they'll, they'll come up to you all the time. That yeah. happens you know, daily. Yeah. Yeah. But I think what was the biggest thing in me 
understanding that feeling of hatred that I had, especially the first, I would say six to nine months after this happened, I knew I had to get rid of it somehow. And to me, therapy did not interest me because to me, I wanted someone, if I was going to talk to a therapist, I wanted someone who had had a similar experience Mm -hmm. to understand this. Like you can tell me clinically why I would be feeling hatred, but you don't understand. And that was, that was something that was just in my head. And I know many people get past that, but I, I just couldn't. And so what I turned to in those six to nine months that helped me get out of that hatred cycle was my faith and keeping a gratitude journal. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm you're very at a big gratitude on that journal right now, like on my desk, literally <laughs> yep. it says daily gratitude journal. <laughs> yep. And I know in many cases when something traumatic happens, I feel like people either turn towards their faith or they turn away from their faith. And to me, I turned towards it and it was a place specifically even going to church to mass. I would just sit there and I wouldn't really even participate. I would sit by myself in a corner and I would just cry. Mm. It was one of the few places I felt safe. To allow yourself to heal. Yeah. 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 And then the gratitude journal, it's, you know, interesting. I've looked at it over the last 18 years. I probably had like two or three. I, I did it for a while because it was a process. <laughs> but even some of the days when it's just like, hey, I'm thankful that I got to have breakfast today or yeah. went to work today. And I think when you do that for a while, sometimes subconsciously, it does continue to happen throughout the rest of your years that you do to just take a little moment. You may not always write it down, but you're, you're kind of mindful of that. Absolutely. There's so much power in gratitude. There's so many gifts, I think, truly deeply in, in that and being able to reframe in the moment, this thing could really suck, but wow, I'm grateful X, you know? Right. Right. Grateful that I had my roommates and my family is around me, that I had friends with me that came to the trial, like all of that was in there. And then after that, it was, you know, just trying to change that attitude of let go of the hate and focus on what you're grateful for. And throughout that, then it made me look at, okay, I was given, I literally was given a second chance at life. That's what I believe. And how am I going to live that life? And that is when I was like, I don't want to live my life in a cubicle farm working and afraid for the big man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, what can I be doing with my life that is going to be, you know, better and more joyful? And that is when I started to reach out to my community in Minneapolis to work in weddings. Love that. Nothing yeah. happier than weddings except for the stressed out. <laughs> Right. Couple and their parents, right? <laughs> right. But then, you know, and I think I'm, I've said this a lot more, especially in the past year. I said, it is such a gift and an honor to be a part of someone's one of their happiest days of their lives. And yes, you're with them through the journey of stress and stuff like that, too. But to be a part of that and to be able to do that so many weekends in a year it's hard to stay in that negativity and into hatred and into that when you are seeing such joy and such hope. And you don't just 
help people plan their weddings, you officiate weddings. I do now too. That was kind of a silent goal, if you will, that I had. I didn't really tell too many people, but when I turned 40, I was like, this is when you're getting ordained online and you're going to start officiating. And I have to say, this is my first year um, in business as an officiant. And I have so enjoyed it. I, it's just been a wonderful way to connect with my couple still and to also connect with their guests and give them, you know, a great start to their marriage by talking about their story and how they met and how they're going to be able to stay together. And it's just been wonderful. (laughs) I absolutely loved it. (laughs) I think it's great. Yeah. You know, you're very good at it. It's really lovely to see you stepping up and into that. You're also very active on the community front, very active in gun violence awareness. Uh, Do you Mm want to speak to that just a little bit? Yeah, that definitely took me a little bit to find my voice in this. I mentioned earlier, I, I come from a gun family. I never hunted myself, but I was there every hunting season with my family. I enjoyed all the spoils and having meat every winter, but I it was hard for me to talk to my family and friends because Minnesota is a very outdoorsy mm-hmm. state too, about what I felt about guns from this. And I also didn't know much either besides my experience, which is, you know, powerful, but still I didn't have a lot of facts and, you know, I wasn't really in that world. And I will probably say that the moment that I really felt that I could start talking about it was, I want to say it was the first or second year that they did the wear orange um, program in memory of Hydea Pendleton. Right. Okay. I just was so moved by her friends that said, Hey, listen, this is not right. And we are actually going to harness what hunters do in wearing orange in the woods and in the fields to see each other. We are going to do that to oh, say, wow. I never not. realized that's, yeah. why, that's why orange. It is. Yeah. That's, that's why they chose the colors because that is what hunters use to watch, to make sure that they're not hurting each other when they're hunting. This, then the next year I went, And I started to meet more people. And that's when I started to understand some of these other organizations that were coming out from the movement. And I I do feel that, you know, 18 years ago, as much as I wish that I had more people that I could talk to about my experience, I never thought we would be where we're at today in terms of the gun violence that we have. That's horrendous. Um, it's, it's, it is, it's heartbreaking and it's heartbreaking that it is such a polarizing issue to me too. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Like I just, I can't understand why so passionately holding on to your quote unquote, right is more important than lives. Yeah. And that's why I also have been, you know, really looking and working at organizations that they are not about taking guns away at all they're talking about making sure we have common sense regu- right. like laws in place for yeah. this. You know, Every Town for Gun Safety is the organization that I 
like to donate to a lot. I know you're probably going to ask this question. I know. But, well, we could just um, do that now. I was, it, it was, yeah. that's so funny. I was going to say, I know you're actively involved in a number of charities. Um, it's yeah. really an important and passionate part of your life. Mm-hmm. But if you had to pick just one, and I think you already <laughs> let the cat out of the bag, what yeah. is your favorite charitable organization to support? Yeah. So every town for gun safety is definitely the one that I support the most in terms of this issue. I just really am so proud of them and happy that they have come into being. They are working to understand the causes of gun violence and working to reduce it through their own research um, and policies that then they can put forward. I'm not sure if everyone knows that actually the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, is basically banned from studying gun violence in America because of our Congress. It is. It's absolutely terrifying when you think of that there's 96 deaths by guns per day in America. This is an issue that we need to be addressing. Firearms are the second leading cause of death for American children and teens. That's just after motor vehicles. And we have so many things in place around motor vehicles. And actually firearms is the first leading cause of death for black children and teens in America. And it's just something that we need to be addressing as, yeah. as a country. And we need to understand every side and understand where the root causes are that are causing the gun violence and that continue to have that. So I really also love Every Town for Gun Safety because of the research they're doing too is actually, you know, when we have the most media coverage on gun violence is when there's a mass shooting and there are, they are horrific and terrifying. And every time I hear that, you know, and hear of survivor um, accounts, it obviously brings me back to my day too, but 59 of the 96 deaths per day in America by guns are suicides. Oh my God. And again, we're not talking about it. Like they, they, you have a much higher risk of dying by a gun if you are in that mindset when you have a gun. And you have access to one. You have access to it. Right. the access is very easy. So I, I hear you. Like we get all of this media coverage during a mass shoot. And honestly, it's it's so sickening to me mm-hmm. how I'm going to use the word average. It's become, yeah. that's a terrible word. Yesterday, I'm sitting in the office with my partner and she goes, oh, two more mass shootings today. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh, like, and I wasn't saying it like, oh, no big deal. I was literally responding to, oh, great. Like, wh- what are we supposed to do about this? Like, just, right. I-, I don't even right. have words. So what yeah. can we do mm-hmm. when there's not a mass shooting, you know, that one day a week um, mm-hmm. to try and create change? And I don't mean to be flipping about it, you guys. I'm not trying. I'm I'm not being an asshole. It's, it's no, gross. And, you know, my kiddos participated in the walkouts and, you know, my oldest wears her orange ribbon every day and, and freaks out if she forgets it at home. And and I know Mm -hmm. we're talking about it and it matters, but from all the work you've done and all the research you've done, you've done, what can we do consistently day in and day out to try and create change around this problem? Yeah. The one thing I would say is donate money to every town. They are the ones that are doing the research since our Congress will not allow research to happen. In order, um, in terms of spending time in making change, getting involved in your local Moms Demand Action group, I feel like even in the city of Chicago, there's eight different groups just in the city. 
based on different neighborhoods. And they're on the ground working to where to raise awareness of gun sense candidates. So basically working on trying to find those that are going to actually then get into yeah. your state or federal legislation positions, legislators. Right. So be involved in your local politics yep. so that you can put people in office that want to make mm-hmm. change in this area. And then as we say too, I mean, just in general, it's the being aware, being kind, being yeah. everything like that. When you see something that seems out of the ordinary, when someone seems more depressed, reaching out to them, all of that. When you have a friend that seems to be in an abusive situation, again, like that's another segment of the gun deaths that we don't talk about domestic violence. So all of that is being aware, being kind to try to help make that change. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Yeah. So you've overcome a lot. You've told us that it has completely shifted and changed who you are, how you look at life, how you move through life. There's a lot to celebrate. Um, yeah. Not the least of which is the fact that you're here with us in general, like in the world, but today here on the show too. But how do you stop and honor and give grace to your successes? How do you celebrate? Yeah. I'm not always like a whoop it up personality. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of, I guess in some moments I do. Um, but I, you know, really it's the, you know, sharing the news with family, visiting with them, spending time with friends, that basic, I think that most people do when, when they have good news and sharing that with them and just being grateful for that. I, I, I will say there are more days that I am more reflective on being grateful and being very thankful for things that happened, even maybe the not so good things in the ordinary day. Right. But it happened and I was here to witness that and I was here to grow from it. Um, So um, yeah, I think it's just, I, I really do try to definitely honor and, and let people know when things are good um, and celebrate that too. I love that. I think that's great. Nicole, can you share your three words with us one last time? Absolutely. Survivor, go-giver, activist. Let's talk about go-giver for those who don't know what that is. What do you mean when you say that? Yeah. So go-giver, I got that term from the book, The Go-Giver. It's a book by Bob Berg and John David Mann. It's a book I read, oh, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, I'm trying to remember. And basically you, everyone knows the term go-getter, be a go-getter. Yeah. And that was something that was, I was labeled as, you know, I'm always like going to get this and striving for this and achieving and going, going, going. And instead of getting, it's giving. So change that to, if I'm going to do something in my business world or in my personal life, how am I going to give? Because you will get in return. Yes. What you need and what is, you know, in a good way is coming to you. So um, I just have really felt that that's kind of where I'm at currently right now is the continuing to figure out my best way of going out to give. And and I so charge everybody to do that, right? Like give freely and graciously and without expectation. Mm-hmm. Because exactly. I saw a sign the other day that said nobody ever got more poor by giving more. <laughs> and I just think that's 
the truth. You know, our life experiences create us, but they don't have to define us, right? Mm -hmm. And if we allow it, everything we experience, everything that touches us, the good things and the bad things, they have the ability to be impactful and meaningful if you simply allow yourself to grow from them. And you're such a wonderful example of that, Nicole. We're so mm-hmm. grateful for all of the gifts that you put out into the world, the energy that you put out into the world, the the giving, the loving, the support, the forgiveness, um, which I know you're still continuing on that journey, mm-hmm. but I, I fully believe you will find yourself there yeah. eventually. So Nicole, yeah. thank you so much for being here with us today. Heather, thank you so much. This was truly an honor to share. Thank you. Okay, everybody, that's it for today. I love having you here with me every Thursday. Look forward to sharing next week's episode with you. Go out and do something brave today, friends, whether it's something big or something small. Makes all the difference. So this is Heather Vickery reminding you to choose bravely. Today's show was brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash thebravefiles and browse their unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title of your choice for free and start listening. It's that simple. Just head to audiotrial.com slash thebravefiles. The Brave Files is proudly supported by Lost Format Apparel, a socially conscious clothing company. You already know that homelessness is a huge problem. Over half a million Americans are living without shelter and millions more without consistent access to everyday basics. My friends at Lost Format know that solving homelessness is a much larger problem than any one company or person can solve on their own. It requires teamwork, sacrifice, strength, and building communities through personal and professional relationships. And isn't that exactly what the Brave Files podcast is all about? That's why I'm proud to say that the Brave Files has partnered with Lost Format. And together, we're working to change the face of consumerism in addressing homelessness. You can now get one of two fantastic shirts custom designed specifically for the Brave Files. Each order goes towards providing necessities to the homeless. We have one shirt that, of course, says choose bravely and another that reminds you that brave is always greater than fearless. Head on over to vickeryandco.com store to see both beautiful shirts and to check out the entire product line from Lost Format. All of their stuff is super soft and comfortable and has an amazing fit. Use promo code BRAVE to get 10% off of your Brave Files custom t-shirts. And if you have an order over $30, your shipping is free. I choose bravely to take the plunge to help solve homelessness. Are you with me? Thank you for listening to The Brave Files. Be sure to visit thebravefilespodcast.com to access the show notes and discover fantastic bonus content. Music composed and produced by Matt Lewis of Union Music, LLC.
Special thanks to our editor and audio mix expert, Andrew Olson. I am eternally grateful for all that he does to make each week sound so fantastic. You can hear more of Andrew's work at findandrewolson.com.